I think we should do a podcast on that topic. Actually, that's a, that would be another very interesting topic. We'll put it on the list. It's a very long list. <laughs> We have ignition. Welcome to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, the podcast for product managers, product marketers, innovators, entrepreneurs, and anyone who wants to be more effective and more successful creating and selling products. I'm Rob McGordy, here with my friend and co-host, Nils Davis. In this episode, we talk about what it means to manage an existing product versus helping bring a brand new one to market. We dive into some of the specifics, reference back to our first 100-day checklist, and help you as a new PM coming into an existing company with an existing product. We hope the insights we provide and the mistakes we share can help you be more successful. All the responsibility, none of the authority, is brought to you in part by Product School, where you can learn some of those skills to help you land a job in product management or improve your performance in a related role. Product School offers flexible night and weekend courses taught by experienced and knowledgeable product managers, and sometimes they even let me help out. Check them out at productschool.com. And now, let's go on with the show. All right, so uh, existing products. This is a pretty fun topic. So let's talk about how we came to this topic, (laughs) Rob. I think we both have experienced this situation where we have started a new job, and the job is basically dealing with a product that already exists in the market. And what we're trying to share in this podcast is some techniques and guidance on how to make the best of that situation. And this is really the common situation for product managers, I would I would guess. Yeah, and it, it, that's the interesting part that brought it to the top of mind for me is that there's so much content out there about how to bring a product to market it doesn't really talk nearly as often about what happens when a product is already in the market potentially for a long time, and now you're responsible for it. So I thought that this was a really great topic that we could probably add some color to, whereas, you know, adding something from nothing to going to market, I'm sure there's more than enough content out there for everyone. Not that we won't do some podcasts about that too, right? Of course. (laughs) So I think one of the first things to think about this is one of the things that I try to remember when I go into a situation like this is that there's some reason. In fact, at my current job, this was, it was really clear the reason f- that they needed to hire me for this job. Right. And in, in this case, this company had been growing, but it hadn't been growing the product management function. And they, the, the one guy that was doing product management was really, really overworked. I mean, he had just way too much product to, to focus on. And so, you know, the, the proximate cause was, man, we're getting big enough that we have to get another product manager on this team. In fact, they were hiring two at the time. So that's one of the very common situations, right? The, 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 the company is growing, the product is growing, and you just need feet on the ground, boots on the ground to manage all the stuff that's going on. And so that's sort of approximate, uh, that's an, a normal situation for a new product manager. Yep. And that fits in pretty well to your ratio, right? You can test when you look at a job opening or you start talking to a company to see if they're within the ratio that you'd expect to start needing more product folks. That's exactly right. And and I think we talked about the ratios in a previous podcast. If not, there's a blog, there's some blog posts about this, but the basic idea is, you know, I think about it's normal for a software company to have about one product manager 
per five to ten developers. You can also think of that in terms of one product manager per five to ten million dollars in revenue. And so this company, you know, I, I as part of my process of vetting them, I looked at where they were in terms of revenue and and number of people, and I said, oh yeah, they definitely are in need of a product manager. It's not just that they think they need one or something like that, but it, the, from the ratio standpoint, it totally aligned. This is not, though, the only reason that you might come into a, a company as a product manager, right? Right. They may be replacing someone. They may be changing directions. They may be splitting and trying to focus on a new customer group. They may just be aware that their product function is not as robust as it should be. There's a dozen reasons. But I do like that this is at least a, a guardrail to say, hey, are there enough PMs there already? Or are they hurting for just pure boots on the ground? Right, exactly. And in fact, you can use the ratio to help you understand perhaps if one of those other situations is occurring, right? If uh, if it's a company with, say, it's got $5 million in revenue or so, or maybe 5 to 10 developers, and they're hiring a product manager, well, is there a product manager there already? Or did the product manager who was there, let? Did is that person leaving, right? Those are some clues you might want to look at as you make this transition. Obviously, we're not really talking so much about the the process of taking on existing products, but that will give you some ideas about what you might be facing when you get started. Right. And I think we had both talked about the the situation where you're coming into an existing product that, frankly, needs to be shaken up a little bit and needs to be either laser-focused on a new customer group or just needs to be improved so that it can continue to solve the problem for an evolving set of customers. And I, I, I like this quote that you had before about <clears> – <throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Try that over. Uh, and so I really like this quote that you had earlier about coming into a product, and it, it felt very visceral to me, but that I first showed up uh, in my current position, saw the products that were available – and started diving in and went, oh, look, here's like a here's a little thread that's that's sitting out here. I'll, I'll just pull that and clean everything up. Uh, and your quote is that oh, I'll just I'll just pull the string and oh, there half the product stopped working. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's that's obviously one of the first things that can happen is you come in, particularly if you've got some experience as a product manager, if you've worked on other products before, is you look at something that this that your new product does and you say, well, that's kind of dumb or that doesn't seem right there's something wrong there or it's not aesthetically pleasing whatever it might be and you say okay i think the first thing i'm going to do is i'm going to get that fixed <laughs> and then you start to drill into it i mean and you may there's obviously a couple of things you can do at that point you can just tell people fix that um that doesn't that often doesn't work for the reasons that you just described rob uh or you can start drilling into it and you can say well why is this this way and you find out oh it turns out that it's that way because of some business rules that the product embodies. This is typically for enterprise software. There's business rules embodied, or it might be some kind of technical requirement or something like that. And if you try to fix that one thing, there's this whole cascading set of effects that, um, in essence, cause the product to no longer work for a significant customer or for a significant set of customers. So those are the sort of things that you need to um, to be very careful of when you start in on an existing product. And in fact, that sort of let's use that as sort of the gateway into talking about some of the steps you have to take when you're looking, when you're starting to work on an existing product, right? So the first thing is don't pull the strings that you see hanging out. They may actually, <laughs> it's not the first thing you you do and it might be really dangerous. 
<laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I'd say the second thing is, especially as you start noticing that there are strings, that should be a red flag that if you don't know why there's a string there, why there's just this little extra thing that doesn't make any sense, uh, you probably need to dig in deeper on either the architecture or the past evolution of the product or some of those business functions. Uh, because there's usually a reason that it's there. It may not be a good one, but there's usually a reason why there's this really random thing sitting somewhere in the product. Um, so that may be a good indication to go, all right, let me stop and talk to the chief architect. Let me stop and start talking to the other PMs in the team uh, or or really do that deep dive for the first 100 days. That's right. Yeah. So we talked uh, a few podcasts ago about the first 100 days and Rob has a really great set of list of steps. I mean, we talked about this list of steps are on the pod, the website of the podcast. And uh, one of them is really learning about about the architecture of the product. And we're going to actually make that one of our steps for this podcast as well. But understanding the way that the product kind of goes together, and this is not just about being able to then understand if you can pull on a string or something like that, but it's just, it turns out to be really important, particularly if, it, if you're talking about at all a complicated product it might not be as important if you're working on an app on the iphone maybe or on a, on a phone app but if you're working on an enterprise software or, or a a big multi-user consumer product or something like that it's really valuable to know where different functions are happening you know what the app server to database relationship is um, what is considered part of the user interface versus what's considered part of the back end or part of the app the app layer and things like that. And so um, one of the the best experiences I had starting as a product manager was actually a company that, that trained everybody in the architecture of the product. <laughs> and I thought that was a, a, in retrospect, I look back on that and I think, oh, that was really valuable. I had learned a lot just in that first week of how to think about this product and certainly how everybody internally thought about the product, the people that had that were there and with much more experience than I had. And it really informed uh a lot of the thinking that went into the product and my thinking that went into the product over the course of the seven years that I was with that product, it was a very successful product. And part of it was because it also reflected the fact that the company really focused on the architecture and they said, we really understand the architecture. There's a, a reason the architecture is the way it is and we're just going to tell you about it and then you will know that and then you can make use of that knowledge and all that work that we did beforehand to make good, better decisions. Yeah, and it's interesting to point out because at this point, um, somebody who's a non-technical PM may be looking or listening to this and going, oh, I don't really know if I'm going to gather that much from a discussion about um, the architecture. Or I'm really uncomfortable asking questions because they're probably dumb questions, for example. Uh, and I'd say that there's there's a lot to be gained by just continuing to ask, okay, why? And so even for folks that are not technically inclined, getting an overview of what the architecture looks like, asking those basic questions of, well, okay, why why would you do it this way? Or what's the purpose of this piece of the architecture? Not only will help you grow and understand uh, the technical stack a little bit better, but you also show to the engineering team that you're open to learning, you are not assuming anything, and you're prepared then to either call BS on something or understand uh, a hurdle that the team is trying to discuss. That's right. That's right. And so uh, particularly if you've got some experience, you probably do have some ability to understand architecture because you did it in your previous product. Um, and if you're, if you're a newbie, at least you should understand sort of the different boxes of functionality that are in the, 
that are in the product, you know, sort of at least from the standpoint of there's some database stuff and there's some user experience and stuff, and there's connections between those, and there might be connections to outside systems. And learning it at least at that level, which is often called the architecture level, is at least a step up and can be pretty valuable. And as you learn the product better, of course, you'll understand the architecture better as you go. But it's a it's it's important to really get a sense of that. One danger, and I've certainly done this, is that if you come in to a product that's similar to a product that you've used before or that you've been the product manager for before, you might assume you understand the architecture already. And then over time you learn, oh, there's things happening here that I'm not familiar with. <laughs> and it, in many cases it would have been a good idea to, to learn those sooner. Uh, in, I've, I've had that experience. And I'll just give you, I'll give you a good example of this. So if you're working on a typical enterprise software-as-a-service type of application, such as the one that I currently work on and the one I worked on before, it makes a big difference whether the database is uh, MySQL, which is free, or Oracle, which is not free. And you make, actually, architecture decisions based on how much it will cost. Uh, some architecture decisions can mean you have to get more databases, and some architecture decisions mean... That you don't have to, that you can use fewer databases, and if you use Oracle versus SQL or MySQL, it can make a difference which of those decisions you're going to take. Just just as a simple example, right? There's lots of other examples of this. No, so we've talked a lot about the technical stack, but uh, going back to the idea that there may be things that don't seem like they fit inside the product, there's another aspect that we haven't necessarily talked about a ton which was uh, the metrics and understanding both the usage and the customer target. And I think Intercom does a pretty good job of discussing this aspect of it a lot. And so one thing that I would definitely recommend to anybody taking on an existing product is, again, find out what data is available to you at any given time, such as you know what features are being used by what customer segments, what are the customer segments, how do you know this, what are you tracking with, right? How granular can you get in the data? But there's probably either an intent or an actual effect of certain customers within or without, you know, inside or outside of the target market using that random thing that you don't seem to understand why it's there. So if you feel like, hey, I should just take this thing out because it doesn't make any sense, it clearly doesn't fit in the product, at least go in and understand what the usage is and whether that usage is by the target market that you're really looking for. Because going a little bit further, jumping ahead, if you're really going to sit and argue that a particular thing should be removed, especially if it's got people using it, you've got to be able to articulate that it's not the target market, it's distracting from the core purpose, etc. Um, or you could very easily answer your own question, why the heck is this here, by finding out that 90% of the people using the product use that one feature, for example. Yeah, and of course, you, you, you still have some options there, right? You still could say, well, they use it, but they don't like it. It's an important business function, so maybe we should improve it. Or or you say, fine, it's it's a little bit ugly. People use it. They don't mind it. I'm going to put my resources elsewhere. Yep. Or maybe I'm going to expand on, on that capability because if I'm coming in with fresh eyes and it looks like that's out of place, but yet it's being highly utilized, maybe there are a dozen other functions that are immediately adjacent that could be built out. So then it's not out of place and it's being utilized and these other dozen functions are adding value as well. That's a great point. 
That's a great point. And in fact, one of the this this actually goes also to one of the reasons that we we're we're joining this company. One of the reasons the company wants us there is because we are an outside eye. We're a new experience, um, and we can take a look at that product and and not just use the received wisdom, but use sort of external validations, so to speak, to help come up with better ways to do things or improved ways to do things or new new things to do. And um, one of the points I always try to remember when I join a new company and, and what I advise people joining, product managers joining companies, is that there's a reason that we're there. They don't just like us. We're, we're, there, we're there to supply something that's missing to the company, right? Whether it's, as I talked about in my current position, where there just wasn't enough product management um, capacity or whether the product management function is weak um, or whether there needs to be a new push into some some market segment, as Rob mentioned. You know, we're there to, to do stuff. And the stuff that we do as product managers, of course, is we make decisions about product and we find new features that should be implemented because they'll help the customers solve their problems better. Um, or we'll do prioritization of the things that are there. So maybe there's not a lot of, there's l less flailing around. And so the number one thing to kind of remember when you are joining a new company is that your job is to supply something that's been missing from the organization and is needed. And so you can't just sit around and say, I don't know what to do. <laughs> right. And one of those things that they're looking to supply may just be the people who don't take status quo as acceptable. So although we've had a lot of, of words of caution here about just coming in and changing things that look like they're out of place, if something is truly out of place or it should be done better, don't just take status quo, even if it's an architecture decision, as the holy grail and the only reason to ever make a decision, right? Even if there's an architecture change necessary or um, if everyone inside the company loves that one dangling feature, it may still be necessary to go to bat and say, this is not the right way to continue forward. This is distracting or this is hampering our customers from utilizing the product. So although I don't think you should come in bushwhacking, you should definitely recognize that you're brought in for a perspective and likely that perspective is supposed to be different from the other people on the team. So if something is really out of place and you have data to back it up, continue to go to bat. Yeah. And, and, you know, unlike uh, Chainsaw Al Dunlap, who used to go into companies and cut them up and things like that, I mean, obviously somebody who who takes over companies in that way is also expected to make changes. We don't have the power to have a chainsaw. We have to do it via convincing people. And so that means we also have to understand what we're looking at. And we also need to understand a little bit about the environment that the company operates in. Right? If you're lucky enough to be an expert in the in the field or in the industry, then you sort of have a leg up. But uh, maybe we can do another podcast in the future on how to get caught up uh, about a topic, whether it's something internal to the company or it's the environment the company works in. But, you know, Nils, you work in a very enterprise grade uh, project management. I'm working very much on the finance side for small and medium sized businesses, all that are in retail. Understanding those two paradigms is critical to understanding whether you're making a ridiculous request or a really reasonable one. And sometimes you're not brought in with that expertise ahead of time. So I do think that spending some time to understand the customer base, understand the target, whether that's the same or different, and then understanding the industry, 
that you're in is really, really helpful. Right, right. And and I always think that there's two or, or maybe even three legs to the tripod of being a product manager. One of them is the product management skills themselves. One of them is the knowledge of the domain. And one of them is often the knowledge of the product. It's the, the specific product. But, you know, a lot of times as product managers, when we join a new company, we don't know that much about the latter two. Hopefully we know something about how to be a product manager. But we have to, part of our value proposition is that we are good at learning enough about those other two items, the, the domain and the product itself, to become valuable quickly. And so, you know, if you go back to the 100 days checklist that, that we did a, a few podcasts ago, that's really a, a, a set of things that are going to help you ramp up quickly on that. And, and we've got a lot more that we're going to cover in future podcasts about how to, how to learn uh, all three of those things, right? The domain, the product, and the product management skills as well. Yep. And speaking of uh, three things and shortcuts to success, uh, unless we have something else, I think we can dive into the three takeaways. Well, let me let me make one more point, which I think is is useful. So we're talking, we're sort of talking as though we're talking to product product managers who've just joined a company. But of course, those product managers work for somebody. They work for either a product management manager, a, a, a VP of product management, or a director of product management, or maybe they work for the VP of marketing or the VP of product or something like that. Um, so a little advice to you um, is that it's not just useful for our, for product managers coming in to know about these things and take these steps. But if you can help your new product managers make these steps, um, you know, make sure that they get the architecture, uh, make sure that they know where exactly the miss what's been missing and what what's expected of them that can be very helpful to to making them making your new product managers uh effective more quick absolutely that's a really great point i think not often enough are product managers thinking about the soft skills of managing other product managers and we spend all our time and most of the content that gets sent out is about how to manage a product not how to manage a team so that's a very very good point I think we should do a podcast on that topic. Actually, that's a, that would be another very interesting topic. We'll put it on the list. It's a very long list. <laughs> so, Rob, what are our takeaways from this podcast? I think number one, uh, understand that you are being brought in to fill a need of some kind, and that may be a perspective, that may be boots on the ground. Don't just assume that. Well. Ask what that is, understand what that is, and then from there, once you've understood that, don't assume that status quo is okay, but also don't assume that you have to come in and start tearing apart the product. So be aware of, of what you need to add to the organization and act accordingly. So I think uh, number two, we would really go back to that whole concept of learning about the architecture of the product. And of course, there's a whole set of 100-day activities that we've done talked about in the past. I think one of the most important ones is this architecture and assumptions piece. Um, and then it spreads out from there. What are the customers doing with the product? Um, you know, who, what are the customers like? What is from learning the architecture, you can learn something about what the team, how the team is organized, the development team. Um, you can learn about how the, the product is positioned in the market and how the market, it's, which is a technical, sorry, and how the product, which is, of course, a technical product, is described to the market, which 
probably is different from the actual architecture. So there's a lot of things that grow out of that whole architecture discussion, a lot of types of learning that you can do. Yep. And that leads into number three, which is basically ask before you start cutting things or as the analogy goes, pulling strings. And that can be looking at data. That can also be talking to people on the team. But definitely don't just assume that your fresh eyes are the only ones that have ever looked at this problem. Yeah, you're not the smartest person in the world. You might be the smartest person in the world, actually. But even so, you don't know everything about this product yet. All right. And with that, shall we wrap it up? Let's wrap it up, Rob. All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. Don't forget to check out the show notes to get even more great stuff at alltheresponsibility.com. All the Responsibility, None of the Authority is brought to you in part by Product School, where you can learn the skills that we talk about and even more to help you land a job in product management or improve your performance in a related role. Product School offers flexible night and weekend courses taught by experienced and knowledgeable product managers. So check them out at productschool.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast feed at alltheresponsibility.com slash iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It's a huge help and we'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again to Neat Beats for our intro and outro music. You can find their music on Bandcamp at bandcamp.com slash neatbeats or on Spotify by just searching Neat Beats. We love your comments and thoughts, so tweet to us at N-I-L-S-I-E and at Rob McGrory or at A-T-R-N-O-T-A on Twitter. Also, you can drop us a line at feedback at alltheresponsibility.com. Talk to you soon. Thank you.